0: Good morning. good morning. There we go. Thank you so much. Uh, just a quick announcement. Joan Hudson Miller, wave your hand. She is doing CEUs for the conference. If you need CEUs, please make sure you sign in as well as sign out at the end. We had a few people who weren't signing out. Um, so just make sure you stop and see Joan on your way out as you leave this morning. This morning we have a wonderful topic and we have a three speakers who are going to uh, give us some knowledge about response to intervention and response to intervention was a topic that came into view uh, through IDEA 2004 and Diane Hager will tell you all about this. A couple things you might want to think about as you think about RTI is well what is it and why are we talking about this in this room as teachers of the visually impaired and professionals who work with people who are visually impaired. So. I'm very happy to introduce D- um, Diane Hager, Sharon Sachs, and Jane Aaron, who will all be talking about RTI so Sharon
1: i have i 'm really not going to talk about response to intervention, but I have the honor of introducing Diane Hager when I was a professor at Cal State LA I had the opportunity to work very closely with Diane and really saw her in action Diane is a real practitioner she brings her skills of and knowledge about reading instruction and learning disabilities to a very practical um, arena for teachers Diane is a prolific writer she has published widely she has written textbooks on reading instruction for students with learning disabilities. She has written another book on differentiated instruction and has an edited text that is um, evidence-based practices for response to intervention. Diane has great knowledge about response to intervention and how it relates to students with special education needs. She is a professor in the Division of Special Education at California State University, has held several leadership positions both at the college and university and on a national and international level. We're very lucky to have Diane Hager with us this
2: morning. Well, good morning, everybody. Have you said that enough times now? (laughs) Well, welcome to the conference, and um, I congratulate you on being so bright-eyed and uh, ready to learn this morning, um, this early in the morning on a Friday. Um, I taught a class last night until about 8 o'clock, so just 12 hours ago. I was still in teaching mode, went home and slept real quick, and and now here here I am. So I'm happy to be here and happy to see um, all of you. And i very happy to see my dear friend Sharon Sachs, and thank you, Sharon, for that introduction. It was a great surprise to see her this morning. I didn't know she'd be here. And thank you, Cheryl, for inviting me. Um, so what is response to intervention? Um, I just want to um, get a quick show of hands. If you have heard this term before Sharon or Cheryl said it this morning, if you've heard this term before, just to put your hand up. Great. All right. We've got good background knowledge established here. That's great. Um, I always like to start with a quote, and um, I took this quote from an article that is cited a lot in the special education literature um, about RTI. Some of the early thinking of RTI came from um, people like Lynn and Doug Fuchs, Sharon Vaughn, um, folks at the University of Oregon, uh, folks at Vanderbilt University, and... Um, um, just some of the great leaders in the field of learning disabilities. And, and it's kind of um, funny for me to be here talking to people in the field of visual impairments about something that we that really kind of is defining the field of learning disabilities right now. I, so I have to kind of take off my reading and learning disabilities hat here for a moment. But I, I went back to um, some of the early thinking, and Sharon Vaughn and Lynn Fuchs said, Ideally, response to instruction can both promote effective practices and help close the gap between identification and intervention. Um, and so I just wanted to um, kind of ground us right now in thinking about effective practices. Our, our main goal this morning is to, to take a look at what the law says and what the research says, but always have that practical um, uh, question out in front of us. What does this mean for how we practice our our skills and practice our craft in our profession? And so we're going to talk about effective practices and then... Um, In the field of learning disabilities, at least, we've sort of had this gap between identification and intervention. We identify a learning disability and we write an IEP. But the intervention that we provide um, doesn't always follow logically. And so our our, um, thinking, some of the early thinking, is that this RTI model would help us through that process. Um, again, pulling from, from Vaughan and Fuchs, um, they predicted, and I think a lot of this is coming true right now, six years later, that um, we would have these benefits from an RTI model being in place. And, and we'll talk more about what that model is in a minute. That we might identify students uh, for services, uh, for special education services, using a risk rather than a deficit model. Um, One of the things we've learned in the field of learning disabilities, and I think in in many other um, areas of special education as well, is that disorders tend to fall along a continuum. And, And where you decide on that continuum the the disorder becomes a disability that requires services is somewhat arbitrary, at least in the field of learning disabilities. And so if we kind of have this risk perspective and think when is this risk um, great enough to need services, that helps us a little bit. One of the best um, and most important benefits of having an RTI model in place is this early identification. Does anybody know the year, the grade level where most of our students with learning disabilities are identified? Put the number of fingers up that would tell what grade. Yeah, I see a lot of threes. It's actually fourth grade. We In fourth grade, um, we have the largest number of students having initial IEP meetings, meaning they're identified for services as having learning disabilities. So if you have a student who's been experiencing difficulty, and usually in the area of reading, think how many years someone has been allowed to sit in a classroom and experience failure. Let's count them. Kinder first. Usually they repeat one of those grades, second, third. So, you know, four or five years is a very long time to come to school every day and expect to learn how to read and have people expect you to learn how to read and then experience failure. I always say, well, I went to step aerobics just once. And, you know, I went into the room and they were going left and I was going right and they were up and I was down and I said, I'm done with this and I walked out of the room. Well, step aerobics is not nearly as important to quality of life for me as learning to read is to children in our in our schools. And um, so how, why in the world would we expect children to keep going to school motivated and excited about learning to read when all they do is experience failure day in and day out? So we have long, long, long in the field of learning disabilities been hoping to um, um, improve our procedures to the point where we could identify children earlier or at least just get them help earlier. So to me, this is the the biggest um, gain that we we, uh, get from an RTI model. We also know that in the field of learning disabilities, there's been a lot of bias, a lot of misidentification. You may have heard the term disproportionate representation. And so we have overrepresentation of some minority groups in um, special education categories and underrepresentation of, of other groups in, in other categories. And no category has had as much attention in this regard uh, than learning disabilities except maybe behavior disorders. Those are the categories where we get a lot of misidentification and um, uh, factors that that lead to that misidentification. So an RTI model holds promise for for helping us to sort that out as well. The other um, benefit from an RTI model is uh, the ability to just focus on student outcomes. What do we expect of students um, when they come to school? We we have standards that tell us what we expect. And and we have reading and language arts standards and, and, you know, at a – basic level, we expect students to learn how to read, speak, and write, and become literate. Um, And so uh, an RTI model, you'll see, helps us to really focus on student outcomes. So, um, that said, I just wanna um, frame what we're going to talk about. We're gonna talk about what is RTI. What are we currently doing in this regard in the field of visual impairments? I am not um, in the field of visual impairments, so I don't think I can really answer that question, but I'm hoping that um, some of you and um, Jane will help us to uh, figure that out as well. And, And how could the model or the concept of RTI possibly apply to the field of visual impairments? Okay, so let's start here then. What is RTI? Well, um, how it's defined in in numerous um, sources um, is a systematic approach, and that first part is just very important. What we've been doing in identifying children with learning disabilities prior to an RTI model is somewhat haphazard. It relies on um, um, attentive teachers to recognize that there is a problem and to do something about it or it relies on attentive parents to recognize that there's a problem. And so someone has to raise a red flag. In a systemic model, an RTI model, we need to think of this as a school-wide model. And, And the idea is that we provide increasingly intensive layers of support and instruction. I've used the word intervention here, but really think support and instruction as a means to determine students' uh, reading and learning needs and and to identify students who are having difficulties. But I want to stop there for just a moment because up to now, I have um, characterized RTI as a process for identifying learning disabilities. Many people in the field and and myself included are really taking um, the stance that the focus in an RTI model is not so much on identification but on the instruction that we provide. And so I would like to sort of change the way we're thinking from response to intervention for identifying kids to looking at responsiveness to instruction and how can we provide the best instruction for our students. Jack O'Connell, our state superintendent in California, um, recently issued a document called RTI Squared. California's model now is RTI Squared. And what that means is, and, and what that is is response to instruction and intervention. So when we put the focus on instruction, we put the focus on the quality of instruction provided to all students, including students with reading difficulties, students with learning disabilities, students with visual impairments, students with other types of of issues that might impact their learning. And so um, the... The instruction that we provide to all students should be our first line of defense. Um, A phrase that's going around the field right now is good first teaching. Having a very strong core reading program that is appropriate for all, that includes differentiated instruction to meet the varying learning needs of students um, is the single best uh, prevention factor for preventing later reading problems and typically identification for uh, learning disabilities. And so response to intervention, I like to call it response to instruction. Um, In an RTI model, these instructional layers, we call them tiers, and usually the RTI models are conceptualized as three tiers, which I'll, I'll get into in a moment. So here's how it works. Um, In IDEA, the most recent reauthorization in 2004, it included for the first time this response to intervention language, this RTI language. And basically what it says is that, that we, um, in an RTI model, in the general ed classroom, so for the first time we have special education law really dictating what uh, is going to happen in a general education classroom. So in the general education classroom, we should have some means of identifying students who need intervention, who are not meeting grade-level standards and are not um, who are potentially going to experience later reading problems. And we should do this early on, as early as possible, though we can um, implement RTI K-12. And actually there are preschool RTI models in place now as well. So we identify these students. We provide supplemental instruction. We provide an excellent core program that's appropriate for all with differentiated instruction. We provide supplemental instruction. And then we observe the student's response. If we have a positive response, meaning the student starts to acquire those reading skills, then we we assume there's no disability present. This is a student who just needed some extra support. They were just falling behind for whatever reason. The emphasis is not on cause, causality. The emphasis is on just doing something about it. Needs, not labels. So if we get a positive response, we assume that there's no disability present. But if we get a non-responsive pattern, if we provide excellent core instruction, provide excellent intervention, and the student still struggles, then we say disability is possible. We don't, that's not enough uh evidence right there in and of itself. We still need to do a comprehensive evaluation. Uh, this is this uh, quote right here comes from the IDEA law. It says in determining whether a child has a specific learning disability, the local education agency, the district may use a process that determines if the child responds to scientific research-based intervention as part of the evaluation procedures. So a couple things are are important there. First of all, the word may. The district may use an RTI process. It is a choice. If if you have followed the field of learning disabilities at all, you you know that how we have historically, since the inception of the law, identified children with learning disabilities, it's through a discrepancy model. We look for a discrepancy uh, between the child's cognitive functioning and their actual academic performance often called the IQ achievement discrepancy. Though IQ um, scores are not used um, uh, as much now as they used to be, we still rely on some measure of cognitive functioning. So you look for some unexpected discrepancy between what the what you would expect for the child and what they're actually um, doing in terms of academics. And so, um, but the law says now, we may set that discrepancy model aside. And we may use this model that might prove to be a better way of identifying children. So you can see that the law is, the language of the law is all about identification. And then how do we identify them? We look at their response to the intervention. Uh, more language from the law. It says, when determining whether a child has a disability, the district shall not be required to take into consideration whether there is a severe discrepancy, blah, blah, blah. And we must permit the use of a process based on the child's response to intervention. So why would districts want to set aside the old way and put in place the new way? Well, there are a lot of reasons. One is we think we are going to get more accuracy in identifying children who truly have learning disabilities and avoiding some of the misidentification and bias that we've had in place in the past. We think we also might have more accuracy because of the um, uh, difficulty with some of the tests that we have used, that we've traditionally used. Um, and for a lot of districts, I think their motivation actually is the bottom line. It may be more cost, uh, more cost effective to use an RTI model because we may not waste our financial resources on, um, assessments and IEP procedures for children who end up not qualifying. I don't know what the percentage is, but a, a good, percentage of initial IEP meetings result in a uh, non-qualification. So um, we're thinking that this process may help us to clean up the procedures a bit and and get us to uh, a higher level of accuracy. A couple of other important pieces from the law. Um, Here's what you could not use as a determining factor for identifying a learning disability. And um, point A up here, lack of appropriate instruction in reading including the essential components of reading instruction as defined in the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which probably we all know because this has been all over um, the No Child Left Behind Act and and Reading First, the use of scientifically based reading research. And so lack of appropriate instruction could be um, the use of a reading program that isn't strong, that doesn't have a strong research base, that's not well implemented, And from this law, we can imagine that districts are now going to be required to show evidence of what that first teaching actually included and did not include. So if a student has had a lack of appropriate instruction, we cannot say that's a learning disability. In fact, I've said for a long time that's a teaching disability. Um, It could not be lack of instruction in math, and it could not be because of limited English proficiency. So we still have um, the difficulty of of separating out what's a learning disability and what is um, a language issue related to learning English as a second language. Um, Not necessarily the focus of what we're talking about today. So, response to intervention, what is it? It is definitely a method for um, helping us to be more accurate in determining eligibility. But it also has this very strong focus on instruction. Um, Good first instruction and intervention. And it benefits students with no disability, but who just might be experiencing reading problems. So that's an added bonus. Um, as a teacher, I've long been concerned about the children who don't qualify for learning disabilities, don't qualify for special education services, but we know they're not doing well out in the classrooms. As a resource um, specialist myself, um, quite a few years ago, I used to go to IEP meetings, and I, would, and I would just come away almost in tears because here's a child who's falling through the cracks. First grade teacher said, this child's having problems with learning to read. Second grade teacher says, this child is having problems learning to read. All along the way, we know this child is experiencing difficulties. Special education is the only game in town for getting reading help to children. And guess what? Uh Uh-oh, you don't qualify. You don't have a significant enough discrepancy. In an RTI model, that student would have the opportunity to benefit from good, solid instruction in an intervention format um, early on, from the moment we notice that there is a a problem. And then we also know that RTI benefits students with disabilities by reducing the achievement gap, and we'll look more at that in uh, just a couple of minutes. So, a little historical perspective. Why RTI? Why now? How did we get here? Well, a few years ago, the the Bush administration formed the President's Commission on Excellence in Special Education. Their job was to look at research and policy uh, in the special education field. They held hearings all around the country, and they produced a report. Um, and a, a big part of their report had uh, included criticism of our current practices, not just in identification, but in providing services as well. And one of the um, bodies of research that they looked at had to do with teacher subjectivity in the referral process. Now, I know that this is not an issue that in the field of visual impairments you, you probably deal with as much as I have as a learning disability specialist. Um, as I uh, alluded to earlier, to identify a student with a learning disability, um, you, ha- it, you rely on a teacher to make a referral. What we've seen in the research is that you could have the same child with the same characteristics in one classroom and that teacher would say, this is a significant enough problem that I want to make a referral, but you could take that same student, put that student in the classroom next door and the teacher would say, I can deal with this problem, I can teach this student, so I'm going to just, I'm not going to make a referral. Or, or the teacher might say, "It's probably going to, you know, be um, uh, one of those IEP meetings where the student doesn't qualify anyway. I'm not going to bother to do the paperwork." Or, you know, there are a lot of reasons why cho- why teachers choose to and not cho- not to um, make a referral. But that has led to a lot of inconsistency and inaccuracy. And, and bias in the referral process. We have um difficulties with our assessment practices and our assessment tools, particularly when the student is an English language learner. We have we have a lot of questions about the appropriateness of the assessments that we use. Um, the third bullet here, lack of high-quality instruction in general ed um, is a problem with the current system and especially lack of differentiation of instruction. We know that um, that good core program is so very important, but we also know that one method does not work for all children. And so um, our teachers have not been equipped with the knowledge and the strategies to really differentiate instruction and to support students from the outset, of reading instruction. And what we have ended up with is this wait to fail phenomenon that has uh, led to years of experiencing failure, which, you know, we talked about um, just a second ago. So um, the bottom line is we've had inconsistent quality of instruction. We've had a lack of rigor in our instructional practices, lack of systemic support. And so all of these problems came to a head when the commission um, put their report out and this was one of the main factors in uh, RTI ending up in our special ed law. Um, So I'm gonna just stop for a second and tell you a story. In my first year of teaching as a special education teacher, um, in 1977, I was 12. Um I was one of the first teachers, one of the first graduates of a teacher education program to specialize in learning disabilities and behavior disorders. Um, and in the 1975 IDEA, our first IDEA, that was the first time we had mandated services for students with learning disabilities. We were just trying to figure out what is a learning disability, how do we best serve these children. And I had gone through one of the first training programs to exist. And um, so I actually started teaching in 1976, which was the year before we were required to write IEPs. And don't even bother to do the math. I'll be 56 next week. Now you know exactly how old I am. So I've been in the field for 30 plus years. And it was a very interesting time to be a learning disability specialist because most people didn't even really know what that what that means. I'd go to a dinner party and people would say, oh, what do you do? Well, I teach children with learning disabilities. Oh, you teach retarded children? And, you know, so we were just really, you know, trying to sort it out. Um, and... In that year, of my first year of teaching, I had a, a very um, astute uh, uh, supervisor, special ed director, who was way ahead of her time, I think, because we're doing a lot of the things that she asked us to do um, now, 30 years later. She asked us to turn in data once a month. She said, now, our children are about two years behind academically, and the, these children with a learning disability, they're about two years behind. If we want to catch them up, then they need to make more than one year's growth in one year's time. If they make one year's growth and they're two years behind, at the end of that year, they will still be how far behind? Yes, two years behind, right? So she said, we need to make more than one month's growth in one month's time. So um, she wanted us to turn in data once a month and if our students were not making one and a half to two months growth in that one month's time, she would like to come out to our classroom and look at our lesson plans and look at what we're doing and, and help us to see if we could figure out how to accelerate growth for those children. Well, lo and behold, I'm a first-year teacher. I'm just trying to figure it all out. And I'm doing all of these things that we thought were important for kids with learning disabilities. The the birth of, of our field uh, is steeped in a lot of mythology and misperception. So I was trained in all of these perceptual motor activities. We thought that a learning disability was a problem with how the child was wired and that their perceptual motor functions were off. So we did a lot of tracing and having kids walk on balance beams and cutting and all of these fine motor and gross motor activities. And we thought that was going to fix their brain so then they would be able to learn how to read. So my supervisor came out to see me because my students were not making growth in reading. And I said, Mrs. Senior, I'm so upset. I don't understand why my children are not making more growth in reading. I have them walking on the balance beam every day. No, I'm not making this up. This really happened. And and I said, sometimes it's twice a day. I pulled out a checklist and I had it marked off very neatly whether they had walked successfully or not, whether they had traced their circles and squares successfully, whether they had held scissors correctly. And she looked at me very sweetly and she said, Diane, I think perhaps you should try teaching them how to read. <laughs> so I'm really not making that up, but that is probably the single most... Um, uh, important factor that led me to go back to school and get a master's and a PhD in reading instruction because I felt like I didn't know what um, I was doing. So I very quickly learned a lot about teaching uh, children to read and I'm very happy to report that many of my children did make progress in reading once I got out the reading books and formed reading groups and started providing very explicit and, and intensive instruction. So that was my first lesson in um, what is appropriate instruction and, and what is not. And and it's been really interesting as a learning disability specialist to see the field evolve. Um, but these myths keep coming back and rearing their ugly heads at us. So that's another conversation for another day. So... Um, some of the reasoning behind RTA, RTI, how did we get here? We've had this uh, um, problem with chronic underachievement in reading, but especially for our socio-economically disadvantaged populations. And how do you sort out um, what is a learning disability? What is um, a lack of instruction? What uh, is related to other causal factors? What is a language issue related to being a second language learner? Very complicated stuff. Um, we've had IDEA uh, coming into alignment with the No Child Left Behind Act and Reading First. So now we have language in IDEA that says we must use scientifically-based uh, research uh, to form our instruction. We need to use valid and reliable assessments and, and prepare students for challenging curriculum and write standards-based IEPs. And so, we, so, so we've had um, these issues coming at us and trying to think about how, how do we best Let's do this. And so an RTI model just um, showed up as po- possibly uh, a way to address some of these issues and hopefully reduce spurious referrals um, for special education. So here's a picture. RTI is usually a pyramid of some sort. It's usually three tiers, though in some uh, states and in some districts they might add a fourth tier. Texas, for example, has three tiers of intervention and then special education would be the fourth tier. So this is um, a model that we would use in the field of learning disabilities. Tier one is the solid core reading program that I've already alluded to. So you might, if you go out and work in schools, you might hear teachers talk about tier one instruction. Tier one is our reading curriculum, our general education reading curriculum. And we have um, state standards and we have national guidelines that now tell us that our curriculum should be aligned with standards and we should be using practices that are evidence-based, that we have research that would tell us that it should be effective. And so that we think of that as instruction for all students. Well, in special education, we often ask, well, do they really mean all? What does all really mean here? Does all mean all? Well, it, you know, we have a lot of different opinions about that. In the field of learning disabilities, I, I think we do mean all. Because there are aspects of the general education curriculum that are very accessible for our students. Given a few accommodations and a few supports, our students with learning disabilities can access grade-level vocabulary. They can learn comprehension strategies. They can engage in discussion with their peers uh, about text. And so we, we know that all students at least in the field of learning disabilities, um, can have access to that instruction. I I believe, from what I know about visual impairments, that this may be true for many of our students with visual impairments as well. With the right accommodations and the right uh, supports, they can access that Tier 1 instruction. But they may need the right accommodations and the right supports. Tier 2 has two components. We know that in Tier 1, about 15 to 40% of, our, of the students may not meet grade level standards. Somewhere in the K through two years, we would expect 15% or more to experience difficulty we would not identify that many students for learning disabilities. The learning disabilities population is about 5% of the school age population. So we've got some students who need tier two intervention who would benefit from it, but they don't really have a learning disability. At tier two, we're not really too concerned with putting a label on and saying, here's a child who does have a disability, here's a child who doesn't. We just wanna provide services, we wanna provide supports. So tier two has two components. One component is how we differentiate instruction in the core program, providing appropriate accommodations, providing universal access, using principles of universal design to make sure that we meet the needs of all students. Um, But then also Tier 2 would be something more, and that would be supplemental instruction. So Tier 2 intervention should not replace Tier 1. It should be in addition to Tier 1. And the state standards are very, very clear about that. That children who are struggling with reading should receive supplemental instruction and supplemental instruction should not supplant the core instruction. We also know that in tier two, some students are going to do very well. That's gonna be what they need. That will be the booster shot that will make the difference between whether they later on experience reading problems or whether they will later on be successful. Um, but at tier two, some students may continue to struggle and that's that where the disability might be possible. If we observe the response and we see a non-responsive pattern in tier two, then we would consider uh, whether this student um, would benefit from tier three instruction and tier three instruction is intensive and specialized instruction and usually thought of as special education. You know what the definition of special education is in the IDEA law? specially designed instruction to meet the unique learning needs of the individual. So in terms of reading instruction, and I'm talking a lot about reading because this is where we have the strongest research base so far in RTI. There are RTI models uh, emerging in the area of math. And there are RTI models um, out there related to behavior and preventing behavior problems. But in in terms of reading, specially designed instruction to meet the unique learning needs sometimes would require an alternative curriculum and an alternative methodology. And here's where we don't wanna fall into the trap of the mythology uh, and the misunderstandings that have guided what we've done. We still wanna use evidence-based practice, but we need to kick it up a notch, to use Emerald language, shabam, kick it up a notch, and make that instruction a little bit more intensive and um, a little more focused and a little more targeted for those students. I maintain that even students who are receiving a core replacement program in tier three could still have some access to the core. California says that children in elementary schools should have 150 minutes a day of reading language arts instruction. That's two and a half hours a day. And so I would think that maybe an hour out of that two and a half hours, they could um, benefit from core instruction in the general ed classroom um, with supports and, and modifications. Or tier three could be you know, a very intensive program for a short time with the goal of getting them back into core. So that's kind of the picture of, of what RTI is. Um, let's flesh it out a little bit. Tier one. Um, As I said, it should be um, scientifically-based instruction. In California, we have a state adoption process. The research base of the reading programs that are under consideration is one of the key factors that the adoption committees look at when they adopt reading and language arts curricula. They also look at whether it's standards-aligned, and California has some of the most rigorous um, and demanding standards for reading and language arts in the country, though other states also have adopted very challenging standards. Um, but we also know from research, and this is some of the research that I've done, I've been, I've spent the last um, six or seven years going out and doing a lot of observation of reading instruction in general ed and special ed classrooms. Um, very interesting. And so I've seen these state-adopted curricula uh, in practice. And one of the conclusions that my colleagues and I have made from our research is that that curriculum is only strong when it's used as intended and when it is implemented with fidelity. And the curriculum is only as strong as the skill of the teacher who uses it. So this is where we get into some muddy water with RTI because under the law, we may be required to show evidence that this problem is not a result of lack of appropriate instruction. And so how we define what is appropriate instruction or not and how we document that and provide data is um, um, up for debate and, and something that you know, I think will flesh out in the, next, in the coming years. Tier 2 instruction would be supplemental curriculum and instruction, and also differentiated instruction in the core, and it must be in addition to, and it also should align with the with the core and support the, care, the core program. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was out in a special education um, classroom observing reading instruction, and the students came into um, the special ed program or the special ed room, out of their core program. They had been an hour with their general ed teacher, and now they were coming for another hour with their special ed teacher. And in the core program, they were using one of our two state-adopted programs. And and one of the key um, elements of the programs that are state-adopted is what they call the sound spelling cards. These cards up around the classroom that have pictures and letters. And so the pictures uh, start with the sound that is represented by the letter. So, for example, for the letter S, as in Sam, um, there is a picture of a, a, a frying pan and a sausage um frying in that frying pan and the instruction in the core program says that s is the s- sound of the sausage sizzling in the skillet so there's sausage and there's sizzling and there's skillet and all those words begin with that sound and so the the students came into the special ed classroom and uh, they sat down and this teacher was using a particular um, alternative or supplemental curriculum called zoophonics. You may have seen it um, in use out in schools. And zoophonics has a whole different set of associations for letters. And so they were reading some words and this word that um, the student was struggling with began of course with the letter S as in Sam or as as in skillet and sausage and sizzling and um, the the teacher said what is this letter this is the letter you're having trouble with and and uh the student uh said went like this for skillet and said Shh. and she said no it's not it's snake and so here, a student was getting two different messages in two different environments. In the, class, in the general ed classroom, S was associated with sausage. In the special ed classroom, S was associated with snake. And nobody was making that connection for the child—that you know what you're learning there is just it, what you're learning here is the same as what you're learning there, and here's how it's connected. And so that is you know a big aha for us, I think, as we think about supplemental services for our students. Um, Supplemental instruction may also just use the core materials but involve pre-teaching or re-teaching some of the content that the student is struggling with. And another thing that we've learned from our observation studies is that the intervention must be systematic. It must be every day. It must be 20 to 30 minutes a day. It must be very explicit. In the um, early stages of an RTI research project that I implemented over uh, about seven years in Los Angeles area schools, Teachers were really struggling with how would they fit in intervention. And we would go into the classroom to observe and, and you know, provide feedback and support to the teachers. And the teacher would look up and say, oh, oh, you're here. I'd better do intervention today. And they would quickly form a group and do intervention. We'd say, no, wait, wait, wait. We want to make sure this is part of your day every day. Oh, I just don't have time for that. I can't fit it in. So that was sort of you know, our initial stages and we learned from that we needed to make sure from the outset, if you're building a school model, you need to build in a plan and, and build in time. Okay, tier three instruction. This is where I actually am focusing my in, in, um, attention right now in, in my own research and, and work with teachers is that I really want to know what good tier three instruction is. If we have children who have struggled with tier one, they've struggled with tier two, how do we define what tier three is? What does the research base, research base say? Um, what would be the best approach for tier three? And we're, we're still working on some of this though we know quite a bit from the research of people like Joe torgerson and, and Sharon Vaughn and, and others who have really uh, worked with the most struggling readers. And um, I've already kind of gone through some of this, that it might be an alternative curriculum, but it must be very intensive, it must be specially designed, and it must be intensive and it must address the the learning needs of the child. We know that assessment is a critical um, component here. We must have an assessment system that would serve this purpose. How do we know which students are struggling and which students are not? Well, we've made some great um, headway in this area, in the field, um, in the last 10 or 15 years, starting with Stan Dino and his colleagues at the University of Minnesota, and then moving on to Lynn and Doug Fuchs, who both studied with Stan Dino, and then went on to do extensive research on curriculum-based measurement. You might have heard of CBM, or progress monitoring assessment. Um, these assessment tools, many of them are very useful for what we call screening. It's sometimes called universal screening. So in a school-wide model, at every grade level, at the beginning of the year, you would have some kind of assessment going on, and we would be casting out the net to catch students who are struggling with with uh, reading or math or or behavior or whatever, but reading is what I know best. So struggling with reading and um, especially students who might have fallen under the radar of a teacher who hasn't quite picked up on it that this is a student who is really struggling with reading. So we want to catch everybody through this screening and we want to repeat that screening at some point in the year in case kids have slipped along the way. And then we want to provide intervention. Then we want to use um, a set of assessment tools for progress monitoring. Well, in a sense, Mrs. Senior, my supervisor from 30-some years ago, who was asking me to turn in data every month that would validate whether my students really were benefiting from the instruction I provided, um, was really ahead of her time. And this is exactly what she was asking me to do. Now we have a wide variety of progress monitoring tools available, and I'm going to show you um, a couple of those in a second. But progress monitoring is the key to a successful RTI model, and I believe that it's also the key to successful special education services, period. If we are charged with providing specially designed instruction, if we are the specialists in California it's called an education specialist credential, then if we are going to be the specialists who can provide that specially designed instruction, we need to know without a doubt whether that service that we're providing is having the desired effect. Is it benefiting the student? Progress monitoring is essential for helping us to know whether they are... are uh, uh, moving along or not. And the idea is that you collect frequent data points to do- and you document the intervention and so you have um, a very good picture of whether this intervention is successful or not. Uh, the DIBELS Assessments, Dynamic Indicators of Basic Early Literacy Skills and Web are two widely used um, sets of tools but there are a bunch of them out there. This is an example of a progress monitoring chart. Um, here is a student who at early on in the screening assessment, um, I didn't bring my pointer, but I think I can use my mouse. Right there early on, the student was way below where the expectation, the gray band across the top here at 110 words per minute on an oral reading fluency assessment. That would be the goal for the end of the year for this child. Um, The Dibble system actually has mid-year goals, and I think that this is third grade. We would expect the student to be starting around 90. So here's a student who's significantly behind, according to the screening data. We've used other anecdotal and observational data. The teacher has confirmed that this is a child who's experiencing difficulty. We've organized Tier 2, and we have intervention in place. And then we start taking weekly one-minute timed readings and chart the student's progress. But first, we draw a line from where the student started at 38 to the end of the year at 110 words per minute, that line is called the goal line. Sometimes it's called the aim line. And so we're we're aiming for the student's scores to fall along that line. If the student progresses uh, along that trajectory, we have pretty good confidence that this student will meet an end of the year goal or an IEP, IEP goal or whatever instructional goal we've set. So just eyeballing this, would you in, uh, say that this student is um, progressing according to expectations? Yeah. This student is on track, probably, to meet the grade-level benchmark. Here's a progress monitoring chart from a possible non-responder. This student um, also was about 40 words per minute, and the goal was 110. We've drawn the goal line there. And the scores are kind of flatlining at first, And the rule of thumb with CBM uh, progress monitoring assessment is if you have three or more data points that fall below the goal line, then you would say your intervention or your instruction is not um, meeting the child's needs. It's not having the desired effect. So you want to make a change. So the teacher here made a change right here in week between week five and six where I drew a vertical line and I put a note that says she increased the time Uh, of the student in this small group of intervention. Did it have the desired effect? Well, the student still um, continued to score below the line and flatlined again and in fact has made very little growth from that initial assessment. So we made another change of intervention. This time it was a change of group and the student continued to flatline. And so we would say, this is a possible non-responder. There are researchers right now who are working on how many times do you change the intervention, how often do you change the intervention. Current thinking is you know, some models are using about six-week blocks or ten-week blocks, and then you reevaluate. And after a couple of times or three times, um, you would say, okay, you know, this is probably a non-response. Let's go to referral. Um, but it's the decision should be made on a case-by-case basis. If you have very clear evidence early on, you should not hold back on, on a referral. Okay, so what do we need to make RTI work? We need a commitment to implementation. This successful RTI model would um, require a school-wide commitment, schools working together to build their model. One of the things I've been doing a lot of lately is going out to schools and helping them to think through this process of how will they um, implement intervention? How will they... Uh, conduct assessments, how will they analyze their data, how will they carry this out? And it requires a lot of collaboration. We've we've um, known for a long time in special education that we need to be good at collaboration. And what I'm finding as I go out to the schools, many times the special education teachers are very involved in the thinking of how are we going to develop this model, even though most of it happens really in the general ed environment. We make group decisions about intervention. No teacher has to be a lone ranger in this effort. It's a school-wide model. We work together. We plan together. Um, And what do we need? We need planning time. And we need a trial period to work out the bugs. You need to just, you know, I tell schools, you just need to get started and then work out the kinks. you will You'll get there. So as we conceptualize RTI, we have these necessary components. We have to have the curriculum in place for all three tiers. Uh, we need teacher professional development and support. We need administrative support. We need the right assessment tools. And we need a commitment to implementation. And all of this is going to spiral together to um, help the children that, that we work with. Um, and so now, that's uh, my big picture of RTI. And now we're going to start thinking a little bit about how does this fit with what we're currently doing in the field of visual impairments? Um, how, do we, how do we take this same concept and apply it? Or, or does it fit? And I know Jane will talk about that a little bit more, but I have just a few um, questions to start our thinking. One um, thought that that I've had, and I've had as I've talked with some of um, your colleagues here in the VI field, is we, an RTI model might be useful in identifying uh, concomitant or co-occurring disabilities. Very often we have children who have a visual impairment and a learning disability or and um, a reading delay or and a speech and language delay or, or some other um, um, issues. And an RTI model might help us to sort that out. It also gives us an opportunity to examine students' responsiveness to the instruction that we provide. And um, the other thing to think about is as uh, professionals out there in the field of special education, we're all responsible for fitting in the school-wide models and the school context uh, where we work out in the K-12 schools. And so um, the, if the RTI model is out there in the schools, it may be our job to be knowledgeable and think about how our students might um, fit in that context as well. So I'm going to stop there and turn us over um, to Jane. And um, I think we'll have time for questions after that as well, right? So thank you.
1: Jane Aaron doesn't need an introduction. We all love and know Jane. Um, Jane is the coordinator uh, of this, the teacher preparation program of the University of Arizona and um, is the Actually, quantitative team leader of the ABC Braille study, and I can certainly see how some of this might apply to what we found in our longitudinal study. So I'm anxious to hear what Jane has to say. We're going to try to leave um, just a few minutes for comments and questions after Jane responds to Diane's comments. So, Jane.
3: Thank you, Uh, and thank you to Dr. Hager for a most enlightening and very practical discussion of the RTI principles. 90% of what I know about RTI I learned in the last two weeks after I was asked to do this response. So I'm having one of those moments that every university instructor has when you realize that you're going to talk for 15 minutes about something about which you know very, very little, but I guess that's part of our jobs. So consider these exploratory comments, an expansion of the questions that Dr. Hager posed to us. And I'll begin by talking about a subject that has nothing to do with RTI, shopping for clothing. Did you ever go to a clothing store and you found that perfect outfit, the one that was just what you were looking for, but when you tried it on, it was just a little too big on top and a little too long in the sleeves and a little bit too snug at the hips? That's my problem. So you stood in the des- dressing room and you were folding and you were tucking and you were thinking is it worth the time and money to get the sleeves shortened or to get it tucked in at the hips and the waistline adjusted a bit. And finally you decided that you just might not find anything that was exactly, that does for you exactly what this outfit does. So you get the alterations made and you put it on and you Try it on and it's exactly what you had in mind. Or maybe it's not, but you decide to take it home anyway and you wear the jacket and the skirt regularly with another pair of pants, and the pants that came with the outfit kind of hang in the back of the closet for a while. This is a little like what happens when we take a concept that comes from another area of special education and think about whether or not it will fit for the students that we serve, and in this case, the RTI model. The overall concept of RTI is an excellent fit, and it's just what we want in many ways, and I want to talk about those good fit parts first, but I also want to mention the areas in which a little bit of adjustment and alteration might be needed. For years, we've talked about the fact that we don't want our students to operate on a deficit model, and RTI describes an approach that provides intervention before our students have failed. In essence, it's a series of safety nets instead of a single yes-no decision about whether or not the student requires intervention. And it also emphasizes the use of careful data collection about when and how intervention is needed. It steers us away from labeling and heaven knows our students don't need another label if it is not necessary in order to assure them of the services that they need. We need to base our decisions on performance. You know, as I heard Diane talking this morning, I thought about the fact that most of you who are itinerant teachers probably have worked very hard to describe a consistent way of delivering your service. And many of us are using models from the Michigan Severity Scale. Colorado has an excellent model, but you're looking for a way of describing how much service a student requires based on some student characteristics. And that's as close as we've gone to consistency in service delivery. But one of the things that we don't consider as fully as we should is the notion of individual student outcome. And that's where RTI can help us. That it may be that the same student with the same set of characteristics is not going to have the same needs based on that student's ability to respond to interviewees in the general classroom. So RTI challenges us to base our service recommendations on real evidence of student outcomes, including individual assessment and standardized instruments. You know, in our field, we tend to shy away from the idea of using standardized instruments, because we were taught in our university classrooms that they're not normed on visually impaired students, and therefore we believe that they're not of value. And yet, they provide us rich information on the student's day-to-day progress and also important information on how that student stacks up compared to his or her sighted peers. We have many instruments now that can be helpful to us in making the decision. And I'm looking at Bob Brasher back there and remembering that I should mention that the Woodcock-Johnson 3 is just recently available in Braille for our students for whom we need an extra screening tool. And that's just one of many, many instruments that can be used useful to us. However, because TVIs have often seen themselves as not the main reading teacher, and in fact, usually they are not, often we don't keep those ongoing records of students' general reading progress. Sometimes I think it's because we're sort of on instrument overload that there are so many good instruments out there, uh, so many different ways of documenting, and there simply isn't time to do it. And we forget about the fact that sometimes it doesn't have to be an instrument. That can also be um, a listing of miscues on a day-to-day basis. Just a notebook sitting beside you in which you list all of the miscues that your student has made in a continuous reading experience. There are many, many good ways of taking data, but that data needs to be an accumulated set of data that will help us in making decisions about whether or not the student is reading appropriately based on the intervention received. Maybe the most promising outcome of an RTI model is the fact that it can help us distinguish students who have learning disabilities that aren't the direct result of their visual impairment from students whose visual impairments slow their progress on occasion but don't create a major barrier. The very first year I taught blind children, and Diana, it was even before you were in the field, in 1973, my class included a little boy that I'll call Ray who struggled with contractions, reversed symbols long after his classmates had resolved them and could not restate the content of a sentence after he had read it. You've all had a Ray, in fact, many, many Rays on your caseload if you've been in the field for a while. He knew he couldn't read like his classmates. I knew he had a learning disability, but at the time, the psychologist, psychologist in the school where I worked said he couldn't assess him for a learning disability because he was blind and blind students couldn't have learning disabilities. Remember those days? The old exclusionary clause of the definition of learning disability then uh, seemed to separate the two when in reality that's not what the law said that when a child who is blind has significant reading difficulties that are not the result of blindness, that child indeed can and should be uh, described as and served as learning disabled. At the time, I wonder if a label would have made any difference for Ray, uh, but for him, And for other students like him, the use of an RTI approach may have provided a stronger rationale for service and may have provided me as the classroom teacher, albeit at a residential school, with the tools and with the confidence to believe that he needed a different approach, that what we were doing was not working. Also, earlier Sharon mentioned the ABC Braille study, and many of you in this room were involved in that, and I thank you for your participation because it's been very revealing, a powerful experience for those of us who were involved. Um, But there's an interesting piece of data. I don't think we've shared this, and my team may, (laughs) I hope I'm allowed to, but one of the things says to me that we are, to some degree, making outcome-based decisions, and that was the fact that our students who had more reading difficulties were actually receiving more services from TVIs. And I think that says that teachers are making decisions, to some degree, based on the difficulties that they see students, happen, uh, um, um, they see students having, and yet... Um, it's not a formalized process. It's a child-by-child decision to some degree. Some of the students were in specialized settings and had an all-day service from a TVI, and others were in public school settings. But there was a tendency for kids who were struggling readers to get more services. Um, the study, however, as a whole, provided a more convincing piece of evidence for me and one that I didn't expect to come out of the study for, with. Uh, it was the notion that the reading problems that our students were having were reading problems that were more typical of reading problems of the general population. They were not braille-related reading problems. The miscues, the spelling errors, etc., were only minimally related to the braille code. Um, I guess the oh wow for for me of the ABC study was seeing some excellent classroom teachers at work. And I began to appreciate the role that the general classroom teacher has in teaching reading. Even though I've been in university work for more than 25 years, I had never sat in a regular classroom without a TVI there and watched what happens when a blind child, in collaboration with the rest of the class, learns reading. And in many, many cases, I was extremely impressed with the work of that regular their classroom teacher, but also reminded of the intense language arts instruction that happens day to day and that is outside of the direct um, role of the TVI. To me and I believe to the other researchers, the study provided substantive support for the fact that we need a better system for identifying our children who require intensive reading intervention. We saw children who struggled, and we saw children who soared. And sometimes the children who struggled were receiving excellent services and struggled in spite of it. Earlier I talked about how applying the RTI is a little bit like trying to tailor a good outfit that doesn't uh, fit quite right. And I want to mention a few parts of the RTI that may not work exactly for us, the sleeves a little too long or the pants that hang in the closet after we bring the outfit home, if you will. One area that doesn't quite fit might be the description of RTI as a system within a system, in other words, the three-tiered system. It strives to limit entry into special education by identifying only students who cannot learn by high-quality reading methods used within the general classroom population. The sifting of students into tiers and the prediction of percentages who will fall into each tier un- are unlikely with our students. There are small numbers of students, as we know, and the occurrence of other disabilities make the percentages almost irrelevant. We may have higher levels of students at level two and level three simply because many of our students do have other disabilities. It's unlikely that we can gather the kind of group data that will be able to help us neatly put the children into tiers based on percentages. And I'm concerned that an expectation of dividing children into tiers by percentages May not be um, may may force artificial categorization rather than support us in being able to decide who needs the intervention. So as a model of sequence, it works, but as a model of proportions, probably not. And gateways aren't quite the same for our students either, because students with visual impairments are generally in special education from the beginning, and they have IEPs once their visual impairment is diagnosed. As special, educator, uh, special ed students, they have distinctive needs that are not going to change regarding of their, regardless of their learning success. A Braille reader is going to be a Braille reader lifelong and in most cases receive special education because they are a Braille reader, even if they are an excellent Braille reader. And they're still going to need tools and materials that are different. So what does this mean in terms of service if a child is unresponsive to high-quality intervention? Then should he receive more services from the TVI, from the reading specialist, or a combination? Or does it really matter as long as someone is providing more high-quality reading instruction? Keeping our children out of special ed is not a goal for most of our students, but including a child with sighted peers in the regular class is usually very important. Since most of our students have other IEP skills that need to be addressed due to their visual impairment, the decision about the nature of supplemental and intensive instruction may hold different implications. I know that all of you who are itinerant teachers were thinking, well, if I provide supplemental or even intensive, or if somebody else does that, what do we sacrifice? Does this mean less time in mathematics, less time in social studies, or physical education, which is critical for our students? or social skills. The application of a tiered system would require the same or more of the same balancing act that you already do each day in trying to decide on the most important ways in which your students should spend their time. If the child with a visual impairment is diagnosed with a learning disability, then how do we work with that specialist in LD to ensure that the intervention will consider the distinctive features for a child with a visual impairment? Another area of misfit may be that we have very little intensive research in visual impairment, and especially in Braille, that will guide us about what constitutes a response or lack of response to intervention in specific areas of reading. While many of the methods that Diane described are absolutely appropriate, things like documenting reading rate, fluency, uh, identifying specific skill difficulties, and we can use many of the same methods. There are different patterns, and some specific to children who have visual impairments, that bear looking into. Let's say that Sarah, a fourth grader who's blind, reads accurately on grade level with her fourth grade class, but she has poor comprehension, and her reading rate is two-thirds of her classmates. Does she require supplemental instruction? Most of you would probably say yes, even though a slower reading rate than her peers is characteristic of the majority of low vision and blind students and probably has some relationship to her visual impairment since she has no difficulties in word recognition or decoding. So what would constitute supplemental instruction? And how could it be configured to address difficulty in comprehension, which is probably to some degree the result of the experience limitations of a visually impaired child? And since supplemental instruction must be in addition to the core program, are we removing her from another activity that might actually contribute to her understanding of concepts and ultimately comprehension? Her reading difficulties can be specifically identified. And in all likelihood, her difficulties in fluency and comprehension are related to the visual impairment. So her intervention program may look a little different than the intervention program with a child who shows a learning difficulty that is more typical and does not have a visual impairment. In short, there is something to be gained by trying to construct a concept of what supplemental and individual instruction should look like for our students. Or to try to get TVI, or is there anything to be gained by getting TVIs in the US and Canada to implement this in a uniform way with students? Or is the main value of RTI for the visual impairment field to encourage TVIs to be partners with the classroom teacher and team in delivering the very highest quality reading assessment and instruction? Perhaps for me, as a university faculty member, one of the strongest messages is that we need to better prepare our TVIs in taking reading courses. At my university, they take only one course, and it's a struggle to add more courses to the curriculum. And yet I think it's a strong commitment that those of us at universities need to have because it becomes clearer and clearer that TVIs are indeed one of the main reading teachers. During the ABC study, I had the opportunity to see some very good TVIs making decisions about how to use their direct instructional time in a manner that looked very much like what we called supplemental or tier two in the RTI model. They identified skills that were difficult for the child in the general classroom, and they developed activities to expand and extend those skills. And to me, the most important part of the RTI model is the standard it sets for excellent reading instruction for students and the process of, the process of tiered decision making is secondary to that. Uh, the fact that we must assess and target reading difficulties. When I was first asked to consider how RTI might apply to students with visual impairment, my initial reaction was, do we really need another acronym in this field? In a world of LMAs, FVAs, IEPs, COMs, and CVRTs, is there another secret code that's important enough to be added to the language of our discipline? It's not a new terminology or even the design of the RTI model that are most important. It's the underlying concept that the precise measurement of instructional outcomes and adjustment of instruction according to assessment are the most effective ways to help children learn. And the reality that some of our students do need more concentrated and consistent instruction than do others. Perhaps one of the greatest values is to raise awareness that every member of the team is in the process of teaching reading. And a great deal is already known about how reading and good reading instruction works. Having the skill to assess and document a child's reading progress, regardless of the child's medium, is essential for TVIs. After the ABC study, I promised myself that I would no longer ever tell my university students, you are not the child's main reading teacher, even if the child is in the regular classroom for most of the reading instruction. To support our students, we must all be the main reading teacher. Just a few recommendations, and then I'll close for see if we have Time for a couple of comments. As teachers of visually impaired, I think the most immediate takeaway message is that you will make your job easier and not more difficult by keeping careful documentation And looking at that documentation over time with regard to a child's reading progress, I mentioned something as simple as a notebook that you keep at hand and every time your child reads continuously, jot down a miscue that the child makes. And over a period of several weeks, you'll have patterns. I think sometimes we don't do that standardized assessment because you're very busy people and you think, oh no, what did I do with the John's reading inventory? I don't have a copy of the check sheet. You don't have all of those papers that you need. But some documentation starts with simple search for patterns in the child's reading progress. Reading continuously with the child every session. Very often I think we're struggling to be skill-based when we work with the students, and yet we don't see the child's big picture of reading, which is can the child sit down and read several paragraphs aloud, and what are the characteristics? And keeping that documentation and sharing it with the regular classroom teacher. That's also terribly difficult because you rarely have time to sit down with that person. But making sure that they see what you're seeing and you see what they're seeing knowing the child's reading progress in the classroom, and being an advocate for a child who is having reading difficulties. People are very quick to believe that because a child is visually impaired, he or she must be a poor reader, and they don't realize that a child can benefit from intensive reading uh, instruction and, in fact, be a learning disabled child. So those regular kinds of advocacy can do a tremendous amount for our students. In spite of the fact that we have to alter the RTI pattern a little bit to make it fit for us, I believe that consideration of a student's response to intervention will result in more effective education for our students. Even if the sleeves are a little too long or it doesn't quite fit in some areas, the model works because we can use it to support the need for appropriate reading instruction for our students. I thank Dr. Hager for providing us with a glimpse of how reading instruction can be improved in the larger school community and reminding us of our commitment to be part of that community. And I hope it will create a vision of how we can influence reading improvement among our students with visual impairments. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jane. We have time for a couple of comments and questions maybe five minutes and i 'm going to hold you to it.
4: Um, my question. First of all, thank you very much for both presentations, because um, it was almost like point counterpoint, and that's really how it needs to to work for us, because we're in both worlds as itinerant teachers. Um, And I'm also speaking from Minnesota, which is a state that has implemented RTI for several years now. And we've been down in the trenches, and it gets kind of intense in some of our school districts. So my question basically is, Um, We need the skills or the um, capacity to identify who supplies these levels of supports in each school district because it changes. And um, also how sensitive these people are to the needs of visually impaired learners and how can we improve both of those kinds of areas. And, I, I mean, Jane touched on this when she said, obviously we need to be involved in those schools and we need to be communicating but just some other hints also. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I, I can, um, answer part of your question and who, who typically provides the intervention. Um, and it varies from school to school. I've probably worked with, I don't know, 200 schools and helped them develop their model. And in some schools, they may pool their funds in some way and have intervention teachers. And so they organize their schedule and they have, um, supplement, you know, um, uh, um, other personnel come in and, and, and do the intervention. Um, in other schools, it is the classroom teacher who's doing the intervention and they organize their classroom schedule and they organize groups and they have the other kids, you know, engaged in some kind of independent work while they work with a small group for intervention. Other schools might use paraprofessionals for the intervention. There are just a lot of different models and so I, I would think that, um, as a teacher of the visually impaired, you may encounter different models as you go from school to school, and you have to think about how you would fit into the different models. Other
1: comment or question?
0: Over here. My name is Brittany. I'm from the Florida School for the Deaf and Blind. I'm having trouble wording my question, but it has to do with understanding how to document um, visual processing deficiencies um, and learning disabilities and how they're connected or not connected and how to do intervention related to that.
2: Oh, that's a deep question. That's a a good question. (laughs) Um, We we actually have been learning so much about this in recent years since um, we've been able to do brain imaging research, and they've been able to identify what part of the brain governs um, the phonological processing, which is the processing of speech sounds. As you read, you have to decode the text and and then recode it into speech. there's this recoding process. In this recoding process, there's a part of the brain that, that you know, governs the phonology of the language. There's another part of the brain, the brain that governs the orthography, which is the visual recognition or rapid automatized um, uh, visual recognition of symbols. And then there's another part of the brain that connects those two and connects it to meaning. And we don't know enough yet about how those different parts of the brain work together, but we suspect that uh, in for a child who has a learning disability, learning to read, they have to build those neural pathways that go between those parts of the brain. What we don't know enough about is can we train that visual processing? We know we can train the auditory processing or the phonological processing. There's been a great amount of research recently on phonemic awareness and how children uh, become aware of the sounds of language and how that then translates or maps onto print in the process of spelling and decoding. Um, What we know less about is how do you um, build that that orthographic um, recognition or automatic recognition of symbols. We suspect that it's best done in um, combination with phonological. So in other words, not just learning to rapidly recognize letters, but recognize letters and the sounds they connect to. Um, so the visual processing stuff that we used to go thir- do 30 years ago when, when I was uh, having kids walk on the balance beam and trace circles and then recognize which direction things were facing, that doesn't seem to translate into reading gains. What seems to translate best into reading gains is teaching children to read, so teaching children the visual and the phonological skills connected to reading. That's, what, that's kind of the best of what we know. Okay, time for one more
0: question. Okay. Anybody? I'd also like to thank you both for a wonderful session. Um, One of the things I'm just thinking of is we keep saying that university programs need more reading instruction for students, but I think rather than waiting for that to happen, at all of these conferences, we should be providing more general reading instruction workshops and not even... Let us figure out how to relate that to what we're doing, whether it's Braille and large print, but just bare bones reading instruction, what we may have missed in our um, university programs.
2: That's a very good point. Thank you, Stephanie. (laughs) Next year. Next year. (laughs) Two
1: years. (laughs) However, we can do that through professional development. Well, for those of you who are in California, we can make that happen. So... We may be calling on you. <laughs> okay. Uh, Diane Wormsley has a couple of announcements. And I, I want to thank everyone for their comments. And this has been an exciting and wonderful start to our um, conference.
0: All right. Well, let's give a round of applause to our speakers here. One last round of applause. <laughs>